uh, going to jump into uh, the book of Haggai, uh, having to make some decisions about where exactly um, to draw the line for messages. Um, ultimately, we're going to actually cover the entire first chapter, um, and then we will uh, spend our last three messages on chapter number two. Um, so we're going to go all the way through uh, chapter one um, this, this evening, not this morning, uh, this evening. Uh, as we uh, work through this. And as we get into this book, let's remember that each of the prophecies are part of the overarching, the connecting narrative that kind of runs through the book. And the narrative is an account of the word of God, the word of Yahweh, through the prophet Haggai. Uh, the impact of the word of God on those who have come back from the exile and the hope that it holds uh, for the future for them. So if we remember the setting... Uh, we're talking about around 538 B.C., Cyrus decrees that these exiles from Judah, uh, these people who have come from Jerusalem, that they can return to Jerusalem uh, and rebuild the temple. It was fun thinking about the Old Testament theme, the book that we're in, um, and to hear that, was song, that song that was played for the offertory. Um, as we uh, think about Jerusalem lifted up, this would have been their heart, right? Um, so Cyrus says, come back, you can come back, you can rebuild the temple, and this is also, uh, this is also covered, of course, in Ezra. Uh, the initial attempt to rebuild the temple came to a standstill, and Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, makes it clear. It says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You say, when is the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia? And the answer is, it's, it's Haggai. Um, that's when it is stopped till. Um, so in Ezra, the temple work ceases, and then it's resumed. Um, in Haggai, that's what Haggai is calling them to do. Uh, we should note that there is a popular saying in their day that God is rebutting, uh, God is arguing against. The popular saying uh, was a very simple one. The popular saying was, the time has not yet come to rebuild. And God is saying, it is time to rebuild. What are you waiting for? Now that's my paraphrase um, of what God was saying. Uh, but that's his message. That's what he wants them uh, to understand. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? That's the essence of what God wants them to see and to capture and to understand. And for our purposes this evening, uh, we want to approach this uh, from this standpoint. Uh, the idea is that God's priorities need to be our priorities. And I think we would all agree with that. That would not be something that probably very many of you in this room would argue against. Um, but yet it's important for us to take those steps back and to examine and to consider, are God's priorities my priorities? Um, and as we approach that, I think this entire first chapter um, really asks this question, why do I need to be certain that God's priorities are my uh, priorities? And there's really two uh, simple 
reasons why, and you'll see them there in your notes, of course. Uh, but the first one is this. Wrong priorities turn God into an enemy. Uh, what do we mean by that? Again, let me read this passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Uh, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Um, I say there in your notes, letter A, God's blessings are hard to miss. Uh, let me emphasize uh, that uh, you know, third word from the end. God's blessings are hard to miss. And normally when we say that, what we mean is that we can't possibly miss it. What I'm trying to say um, is kind of an ironic turn of the phrase, that when you miss God's blessings, you are really missing something. They're difficult for us to endure. Um, it's something that God intends for us to have. Um, if we think back to verse number two, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, this, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You know, when the people objected that it was not the right time to build, they betrayed the conviction that they had an obligation to restore the temple. Because think about this. Um, this is almost like Shakespeare, you know, where, where the idea is you're protesting too much, right? Uh, that's the idea that is being brought forward, right? Uh, that they're, they're betraying the fact that they knew they should rebuild and it's just like, but not yet. Okay, God, we know you want this, but not yet. It can't yet be happening. Um, we need to have more time to do this. And what they were doing is that they knew that behind the decree of Cyrus was God's mighty hand. God had brought the Israelites back to the land for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And they started and they stopped. And then they kept coming up with excuse after excuse. We look at that, and it's easy to pick on them, but it's, very, it's also really easy to turn, that, to turn those eyes on ourselves, isn't it? Um, and, and we'll continue to do that as we work our way through the passage. You know, they received opposition when they attempted to build the temple. And so they got involved, they started building the temple, and uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, and so they stopped. And soon the claims of God stopped receiving priority. You know, one commentator put it this way. He said, there followed a, quote, a sort of truce between conscience and covetousness, end quote. That's a beautiful concept, right? That's exactly what was happening. Um, that they're, they're, they decided they were going to, like, embrace kind of this middle ground between covetousness, these paneled houses, um, and their conscience, which says we need to serve the Lord. Uh, until it came to a point where there was really no suitable time for people to rebuild the temple who were really not interested in rebuilding the temple. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe next year, or maybe the year after, or maybe the year after that. And it just kept getting pushed back and back and back. And it's helpful for us to realize the issue was not abject poverty. Uh, we're not talking about a situation of deep and pervasive poverty that kept them from rebuilding the temple. That's not what was occurring. After all, chapter 1, verse 4, if you look there again, what does it say they were living in? Paneled houses. And you say, what does that mean? And well, let's just say it this way. Uh, they were nice places to live. Uh, and God is pointing this out. Uh, we have the skit up here about the Lord's Prayer. And have you ever... You wondered what it would be like to have that kind of conversation with God, right? 
Um, it's fascinating to kind of use your, our imaginations to think about that. What are the things that God would point out in our lives? And it's really not that hard to figure out because the Spirit of God does that already, doesn't he? Uh, but if God actually spoke to us and if he actually singled things out, but here are the people in, in Haggai's day and God says, what about your paneled houses? <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine hearing this as an Israelite from the prophet? And the prophet says, thus says the Lord. And he says, those of you living in paneled houses. And you're just like, uh, <laughs> I wonder if people have noticed. <laughs> uh, and God's just laying out the truth, right? And what was God's response to this? What would God, what would God do to turn their hearts back to proper priorities. Look at verse number 5. Haggai 1.5 says, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What great imagery is that, huh? And what the prophet exposes here. Can I put it this way? It's not hardship. It's rather non-fulfillment. They had seed to sow, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, gainful employment. What were they missing? Genuine satisfaction. Their problem was not a lack of goods. Their problem was the good. You know, Haggai does not say their crops failed he rather says they didn't live up to what they could have been. They didn't meet the expectation. They had the goods, but the good life evaded them. You know, according to the last phrase of verse uh, number six, inflation was high. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. As we felt inflation creep up in America, it's like, okay, I'm making the same amount, but yet it doesn't go as far. It's like I put them into my pockets and it just is not making as much a dent on the bills that are there, right? Um, you can almost hear them saying, you wouldn't believe what I had to pay for this, <laughs> right? You can almost hear them saying that. Um, as, as, Haggai, as Haggai puts it, you would think there is a hole in my purse. And that's about as literal a rendition as you can get from the Hebrew. <laughs> uh, you say, they use purses? Okay, it's, you know, it's, it's cultural, right? It's cultural. It's not that they had no money. The money didn't go far enough. And you say, isn't that simply normal life? You know, Steve, aren't you just talking about normal life? I mean, you just referred to us. We go through that. And I would say, but you have to understand, friends, it was not intended to be that way. Um, that wasn't what God had said. God had brought them back to the land, and he had promised them that if they put him first, that he would pour out his blessings upon them. And we have to understand this in a way that I think is different in our particular dispensation or covenant. Uh, that as we look at it from our, our vantage point, uh, what they were considering was a physical, literal blessing. God had said, I will literally bless you. If you want to talk about a health and wealth gospel, this is not exactly what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is that God said, here is my promise to you, and it was real, and it was tangible, and they weren't getting it. And God was kind of snapping his fingers in front of their eyes and saying, don't you get it? The fact that you aren't blessed that way 
is because you aren't putting me first. And they weren't understanding it. They weren't receiving God's blessing. And here's the kicker. They were okay with it. They were like, yeah, but it's not so bad. <laughs> it's like, we got food. We got our paneled houses. Everything's fine. Okay, now let's just pause a moment and think about our situation in the New Testament in America. And how many times are we tempted to think, you know, I could be sold out for God. Or I can live a pretty contented Christian life that isn't sold out for God. And I would say that's exactly what he's fighting. He's saying, if you want the full blessing of God, God is saying, I'm withholding your blessing so that you can be fully blessed. Because what I want is your whole heart, your whole life, your whole being. And the tragedy is that they were not devastated by that. And I'd say, dear friends, this is, I can live here so easy. Because America, with all of the things that it offers, feels so comfortable, doesn't it? And God is saying, I have so much more for you. Just be willing to pursue it. You know, we, we see this in a lot of different ways, and I uh, threw up a couple of images uh, to illustrate this. Um, really probably the kind of worst thing, the worst place to be um, if you are up on a, you know, a metal uh, pedestal for the Olympics. What place is the worst place to be? It's, what's that? Second, right? Yeah, silver, right? Um, so do you recognize uh, these folks, right? This is from a while ago. This is the women's ice hockey team in 2014. And you say, what, what did they do at the Olympic in 2014? And they got second place. Don't they look like it? <laughs> I mean, they are devastated. Uh, at, the, at the medal ceremony, this is at the medal ceremony. <laughs> okay, this is like, they're giving you the medal. And this is how they look. They're just like broken hearted. Uh, the bronze medal winning Swiss, they were like, we're just happy to be here. This is awesome. Thank you for the medal. Uh, and the Canadians, they were triumphant that year. But in the middle, there were the Americans. No one smiled. It's just fascinating to watch, right? No one smiled. Some of them were in tears as they accepted their silver Olympic medal. How many of you have a silver Olympic medal? Anybody? But these gals are like brokenhearted. <laughs> Perspective is everything, isn't it? Uh, do you remember this face? This became a meme. This is Michaela Marooney. This is in 2012, women's gymnastics. This is the face she made on the pedestal stand as she's getting her silver medal. And they're like, hey, you won silver. She's like, mm. <laughs> awesome. How about this trio? This is uh, 2000 Sydney Olympics. Alexander Carolyn, he was uh, the guy from Russia at the end, right? This guy right there, um, as if you couldn't tell. Uh, and he had, uh, he had never lost a match in international competition. Uh, but the American, Rulin Gardner, uh, this very happy fellow right there, <laughs> he, uh, he broke his grip during the gold medal match. He became the first wrestler ever to score a point on Carolyn. And look at that, that guy's 
death stare. This is on the pedestal. <laughs> and he's like, I am going to kill somebody. <laughs> I mean, he's like, this is not what I imagined. Uh, and he was getting second. He got silver. <laughs> National champion. Uh, you know, um, awesome stuff. You know, we think about this, though, and it's like this is how we ought to feel when we're not experiencing all that God has promised us. And he has promised us so much. What, what blessings are available to you which you are missing out of because of your relationship to God? Now, and I understand this can be difficult to discern, but the blessings are there for us. You say it'd be easier if it was all physical blessings, then I would know, right? Uh, but it really is not as hard as we might think. You know, the joy of God himself rather than the pleasure of good things. Think about that. Do you actually enjoy the person of God? Because if you enjoy the person of God, spending genuine time with God, uh, then all of the other stuff, it just doesn't matter. It's circumstances and it's circumstantial. And it could go up or it could go down, but you can rest in the joy of God. What about peace that comes from a right relationship with God? Peace with God and peace with others. And you say, man, I just struggle with that. Boy, in the, in the Lord's Prayer uh, uh, skit uh, that the contenders did, um, there he had, I think he called him James, right? Uh, they had James um, who was struggling with forgiveness. Uh, and there was no peace with other people. And how many times do we go through life with this tension that exists between ourselves and God or between ourselves and others and we're missing out on the blessing of God and God says you can let that go and you can have genuine peace with others you could be content but instead we walk into God forbid but we walk into the church and we see somebody else and we go I'm going to go to the bathroom because I don't want to see him and you get into the, the line at the pot providence, because we don't believe in, pot, in luck, right? Uh, and you get in line uh, at the potluck, I'm just teasing. Uh, and you find yourself next to somebody and you're like, I do not want to be standing next to this person because there's something between us. Uh, and at that moment, those moments, it's like God is just reaching down. He's calling to us to make those things right. What about security that is attained by genuinely trusting in God rather than trusting in ourselves? You know, when we take that load upon ourselves, you say, is that, do you think that's what God wants you to do? That he wants you to wear the burden of all of your life? That, that like your problems are only your problems? Um, don't buy into the American idea that, you know, God helps those who help themselves. That's, that's malarkey. I think I can say that word. Uh, that isn't, that's, that's not real. That isn't how God made us, Right? Uh, we weren't designed to handle those things. We're to turn that to God, genuinely. And you say, I'm not sure that I want to give up control. Ah, <laughs> right. But God says, my way's better. How about the blessing of purpose? Have you ever been listless, anxious, always casting about for something to like actually live for? And you say, I keep pursuing these hobbies and they don't satisfy Because you're made for something greater. You know what you're made for? God's purposes. Fulfilling his vision. Being active in his plan. 
And that, that gives you all the purpose and joy and drive and fulfillment that you could want. All of this um, is taking these priorities and it's turning God into an enemy. Because suddenly God is withholding that which he has said, please find in me. But we also see in this passage that God loves us enough to harm us. His blessings are painful, hard to miss. But God loves us enough to harm us. If we go all the way back to verse number 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Uh, This people, verse 2, I just want to bring this out. You know, it's stated this way to demonstrate the distance that exists between the people and Yahweh. Just think about that little phrase. These people. (laughs) God doesn't say my people. He doesn't say the children of Israel, right? He says these people. Why? Because because what? Distance has happened between them and God. Uh, And they did not question uh, that they needed to remove it. In verse number 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Literally, set your heart upon your ways. But in in Hebrew, uh, which we're dealing with the Hebrew text, uh, the heart is the seat of the will, not the emotions. And so I know that's, that's challenging, right? New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. Um, Heart is emotions a lot of times uh, from that standpoint, but here it's the will. So he says, consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. Um, They're called to consider the outcome of the way in which they've lived their lives. And boy, I think there's a tremendous call. It's good for us to do this, to say, let me take a stock, let me look at my life and consider my ways. And this is what he's calling them to do. Uh, The implication is that failing to rebuild the temple has adversely impacted their life. That's interesting. God is not above doing something practical to get your attention. Uh, And God is very good at that. Um, In verse number 9, he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Talk about God turning into an enemy. God says, you brought home uh, the harvest and I blew it, uh, blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruin. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you, uh, therefore the heaven, heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. You know, so really for that first time, Yahweh makes it clear that which he has to this point implied. It is God who is fighting against Israel. Two decades have gone by um, as they have refused to build the temple. And God has said, I am going to get involved to bring you to the point that you will build the temple. And he is doing all of these things, and then he sends his messenger, Haggai, to say, you need to see this. You need to understand. People, you need to turn back to God. Now, let's remember that God does discipline us, right? And we know this. Uh, the New Testament talks about this. The Old Testament lays this out over and over again, and that's all that he's talking about here. The reason that God is bringing about punishment is not because he's just trying to grow them He's trying to call them from sin. 
He wants them to repent, right? It's to bring them back to God. And we're not going to take the time, but Leviticus chapter 26 talks about um, all of the things that God will do uh, to bring that about. But you know, in the midst of that, they began to look at all the things that were happening around them and they began to think, maybe this isn't God. Maybe this is just life. Uh, And I think that's important for us to recognize because that's easy for us to do. Uh, There's a reaction for us uh, to work the system, to find ways to offset uh, the various challenges uh, that come around us. And for us, as for Haggai, the only proper reaction to a world run by a sovereign God uh, is to be properly related related to him, the person in whose hand is our breath, in whose hand are all our ways. And you know, I think that this is a massive temptation. I've already mentioned this, but let me just um, drive this point home as much as I can. You know, dear friends, I think that we know in America, we know how to work the system. You know, under the, under the guise of righteousness without actually seeking God himself. That we can show up and we can say the right things, we can do the right things, we can do the check boxes. But where's our heart? We can develop a, a, a kind of Christianized secularism where within our Christian bubble, we still are elevating our own priorities, not God's. Uh, And in the midst of that, we find ourselves in the same position as these exiles returned from Babylon. We do some of the right things, but we do it for selfish reasons. Um, Really, Tim's uh, message this morning um, had a lot to do with with that. Where it's like, well, we're just doing church. We're doing church just to do church. That's what we do. We do church. (laughs) And it's like, but it has to be more than that. Um, If it isn't, we're turning God into an enemy an actual enemy. And in the Lord's eyes, he is in the system, all right, but he wants to be the center of it. He wants to be the focal point of it. And that, dear friends, was the significance of the temple because the significance of the temple was it was the presence of God. It was the place where God was going to reside. And so they needed to rebuild the temple because they wanted God to be with them. And that's so crucial for us, Um, not because we're trying to build a church so that God can be there, or a building so God could be there, but rather we must seek God himself. Even as Jesus said, the day is coming when you worship me in spirit and in truth. And it's like, yes, that's what we're after, but it has to be real. It must be real. You know, what would it look like to have God involved in your personal life? Just think about this for a moment. What would it look like to have God involved in your personal life, but not at the center of it? Okay, he's a part of it, but he's not at the center. What would that look like? What about in your family? You say, we include God, but is he the center? What would it look like to have God involved on the peripheral, but not be the driving force? You know, what about your church life? You know, our wrong priorities are God's concerns because God desires that which is best for us. Please don't mistake this. God desires to pour out his blessings on us, right? That's his heart. That's what he desires. But those blessings have to be found in right relationship with him. Wrong priorities turn God into an enemy, but they also turn God into a stranger. Uh, Verse number seven 
Um, you, maybe if you were astute, you noticed I skipped verse 7. I, I did that intentionally because it's going to bring out this point. Um, Haggai 1.7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You know, there was plenty of stone from the destruction of the first temple. The necessary heavy timbers had already been imp imported. That was Ezra chapter 3. And other timber could be found in the wooded hills of, of Judah. Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 verse 15 makes that clear. The emphasis, however, is on using what lays at hand. The important thing was not the size or the magnificence of the house, but the existence of it. And so I think it's important for us to understand that God's delight is a worthwhile pursuit. What did God want? He said, go up to the hills, bring wood, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. You know, these verses, these verses, verse 7 and 8, they show us the positive reason they were to build. It was for the delight of their God. It was for the glory of their God. And, and consider the opposite of this, pursuing that which delights ourself rather than that which delights God. Uh, or building something to bring glory to ourselves rather than that which brings glory to God. The people are to build the temple not for relief from the covenant curses, but for the pleasure and glory of God. And you know, our motives and our actions matter. Our motives show us what we're doing. Our actions reveal those motives. And God desires for us to care about the things that bring Him delight. And if you want to do a good hard check on your relationship with God, you should ask yourself, if you care whether or not God delights in something. Do you care that God delights to spend time with you? You know, so many times it's, it's a little bit the opposite, isn't it? Where it's like, I, I know I need to spend time with God because it'll be good for me. <laughs> I know I need to spend time with God because I, that, that really needs to be something that I do. Um, I want to be that kind of person. But do you, do you realize that everything that God has done from the beginning of time has been because he wants to spend time with you? I, that, that's what happened with Adam and Eve. You put them in the garden so that he could be with them and spend time with them. And everything will come back to that, won't it? It'll all come back to that. Where finally it'll be, I will dwell with them, God says in Revelation. It's all about God delighting to spend time with us. And friends, I, I, that's important. It ought to be important for us. Do you care that God delights to spend time with you? Do you care that God delights so much in you that you're unwilling to let anything come between you and your relationship with him. That you're like, I know that God loves me so much and that if I allow something to come in there, that that's going to break his heart. And I say, that's the kind of passion and love for God that we need to learn to have. We need to cultivate it. And don't think that it'll just happen. You have to seek it. You have to pursue it. You have to run after it. The same way that we build relationships horizontally, we build them vertically. We spend time with him. We value the things that he values. And we learn to value the things that he wants us to. And that causes us to love him. That's what brings us to the point where we would be like a Joseph, right? Um, where he's tempted to sin against God uh, by sleeping with Potiphar's wife. And rather than doing that, he's so concerned about his relationship with God that he says, how can I do this great evil against God? His delight is in God, and his delight is in God's delight in him. And he doesn't want to shatter that relationship. Hey, if you struggle with habitual sin, 
You can put up fence after fence after fence. But dear friend, until you learn to love God more than that sin, you'll keep falling to it. But once you learn to love God more than that sin, that thing will no longer be a temptation. And then as it begins to come up, you'll be like, man, I need to check my heart because I'm starting to love something other than God. And you turn back to God and you love him more. And then that temptation fades away again. And it's all about that heart. After all, isn't that what God called us to do? Love the Lord your God, right? And then Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's all driven from that love. Do you care that God delights in your worship? Do you care that God delights in using you to impact others and advance the gospel? You say, I know I need to give the gospel. Okay, but if you knew how much God wanted that for you, then that becomes the motivation. So do I obey God and include him in my life only because if I don't, then my life doesn't go well? Is my obedience a, a merely a reflection of the fact that I use God to further my own desires? Or do I obey God because it it brings delight to him. God's delight is a worthwhile pursuit. God's delight is a fulfilling pursuit. Note what, you know, pay attention to what happens when they reprioritize God himself. I don't know if I put this up there. I did. Then Zerubbabel, this is verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Just, just, just pause, just a moment, think about that. It's an unbelievable statement. I I'd made this statement um, yesterday that Haggai was one of the most successful prophets. Um, but here he is, here's Haggai, he's coming out and he is commanding the people to do this. And what did the people do? They obeyed. It's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's God actually changing hearts, right? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. Isn't that awesome? They feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. It's such a simple message, but it's everything. As they came to him, as they said, they'd been saying, it's not time to build. It's not yet time to build. We shouldn't rebuild. We shouldn't rebuild. And God said, listen, now's the time. And they listened and they obeyed. And then God said what? Here's the blessing. I'm with you. And that blessing is, is everything. Can you imagine walking in right relationship with God? Hey, I, I, I'm talking here, I'm certain, to so many people who are believers. Can you think back to those moments in your life when you were 100% right with God? And you were so satisfied and filled with joy and peace and security. And everything else washed away. And God was everything. And you opened your eyes and you saw the glory of the Lord. And it was like, that's how I want to live my life. And what is that? That is God dwelling with us. And I'm telling you folks, we can have that way more than we do. That's the blessing of God. Uh, and we dare not get satisfied. And that's what he gives them. And he says, I am with you. And then verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, 
governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God was with them, and he stirred their spirits. He was active in their midst. And so don't let those little phrases escape us, right? They're so powerful because we can relate to it. We remember those times. We remember when we're so moved uh, by who God was that we didn't care about anything else but him. That's everything. What if the reason that we don't see God at work among us is because we have sterilized God by seeking good things that God gives rather than God himself. You know, what if we've turned God into a stranger all the while pretending that he's active in our midst? It can be devastating. You know, how many people here love Monopoly? Any Monopoly lovers? Monopoly, don't be ashamed. If you love it, you love it. <laughs> we have some Monopoly lovers. I'm a strategy game lover. Um, I think I threw up a, a picture of Monopoly um, how many people here hate Monopoly? Don't be ashamed. <laughs> it's kind of a love-hate thing. Um, I remember John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed book um, and his review of Monopoly. He made some interesting points. Uh, he pointed out that Monopoly uh, was originally created as a game intended to show the evils of capitalism. Can I get an Amen. Now think about it for a moment. The evils of capitalism. How much luck was involved? How much luck is involved in the game of Monopoly? Is there a lot of luck or a little bit of luck? Yeah, <laughs> Tim. Tim says all luck. It's all luck. Um, it's the roll of the dice. And if you win life's lottery, then you become rich. Does that sound like capitalism? The evils of capitalism. But that, that's kind of the guy who created it. That was his idea. That was what he was putting forward. And he was going to demonstrate that it, through luck, people would become rich. And then what happens? What happens in Monopoly? If you're rich, what's the next step for you? What is that? Make everybody else poor. Okay, so if you're rich... You get richer. And what happens to the poor? If you're poor in Monopoly, you get poorer. <laughs> and so it's really, it's kind of genius, isn't it? Uh, because he's laying out here. He's like, look, it's all luck. And if you start rich, you'll get richer. And if you start poor, you'll get poorer uh, until everybody is angry at each other and frustrated. In some ways, it's almost as if the game is suggesting that getting more money will make you happy. And it ends up, to some degree, not doing that. In fact, have you ever won Monopoly and thought, man, I'm the best game player there ever is? <laughs> or do you look at it and go, well, I had some lucky rolls. <laughs> you know, the Israelites were looking to find their delight in their paneled houses when they should have been looking to find their delight in their relationship with God. It's the cold, hard truth. And it's interesting to remember the ironic reversal of the situation from David's day. When David was in his cedar house and he wanted to build the temple, the prophet Nathan told him what? He said, it's not time to build. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? 
Now the people are in their paneled houses. They want to delay, but Haggai says, it's time to build the temple. And what's the difference? The heart. David's heart was towards the Lord and God was pouring out his blessings on him. And the people in Haggai's day, their heart was towards themselves and God was withholding everything from them. And it's like, what? when are we going to learn that lesson? Hey, let me just ask you these simple questions. Just as you examine your own life, have I turned God into an enemy? Have I turned God into a stranger? In what do I delight? Oh, dear friend, God is most interested in being in relationship with you. And the deeper that is, the happier he is. Ponder that. That is what God desires most of all. Let's turn to him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to just come and to examine this powerful book, to be encouraged by what was happening in the lives of the Israelites in Haggai's day. And Father, also to be instructed by it, even as they were called to consider their ways. Lord, help us to consider ours. And Lord, may you reveal our hearts and may we pave a different way. May we see you for who you are and may you turn our hearts towards you. Be with everybody here. That as they listen to this, as you work in their hearts, Father, would you reveal things to them? Would you draw them to yourself? We rest in you. You're the only one that can do it, and we know that you will. May your spirit stir up our spirits. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.